0: Welcome to the Accord Research Alliance podcast, where we talk with innovators who are committed to measuring what matters in Christ-centered relief, development and advocacy. My name is Rodney Green, Senior Manager of Monitoring and Evaluation at Compassion International, and one of the hosts of this podcast. Today, I share with you a recent conversation I had with Dr. Drew Hart on decolonizing research methods, and practice with communities facing oppression particularly around the why behind what we measure what we measure why we measure it who benefits from it all of those things and wanting to build upon a theological foundation decolonization is a term that can be defined in multiple ways one way of unpacking it is to really think about it as active resistance against colonial powers or legacies in the shifting of power towards political, economic, educational, cultural independence and power that originate from a colonized people groups own culture. Another way of thinking about it is in terms of deconstructing colonial ideologies of superiority and the privileging of Western thought and approaches. It also involves dismantling structures that perpetuate the status quo and unbalanced power dynamics. Um, It also involves valuing and revitalizing indigenous knowledge or other people groups who've been historically oppressed or marginalized, weeding out settler biases or assumptions that have impacted the way many different people groups have been uh, oppressed throughout history. This is really just one lens in which we can use to really think about how we work with communities, especially communities who've been historically oppressed. And the conversation between Dr. Drew Hart and myself really just scratches the surface. We start the conversation by rooting ourselves in scripture and thinking about what scripture has to say to us as we engage with these realities around us of a racialized world, of a colonized world, and a world that's still living within these streams and structures that have been created, sometimes even hundreds of years ago. And so we really just kind of introduce this topic and start to unpack it um, in terms of both how we think and how we approach this from a A Christ-centered or theological point of view, and also how we think about it in terms of data and how we think about data and use it and collect it. And just to say as well that decolonization is, is one way to look at this. It's one lens in which to look, and there are multiple ways. And some of those ways are going to be unpacked for us at the Accord Research Alliance Intensive, which is coming up on October 11th, 2022. And there'll be multiple ways to really start to look at this topic. Um, Decolonization is one lens. There could be ways that it's reframed as well in the light of Christ's teachings, Um, but all with a heart towards liberation and thinking about how we contribute to and foster liberation among us, um, especially for those who have been purposefully silenced or purposefully ignored or purposefully oppressed and exploited in ways that go against what Christ teaches us about loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so we hope that you enjoy the conversation and it sparks some thinking and further investigation for you um, as you think about these topics. There's a lot to learn in this space. There's a lot to listen to others as well, and so we hope that this just sparks further conversation and further exploration and further thinking and framing around this topic. Um, So we hope you enjoy that. Dr. Drew Hart is an author activist and professor in theology and the bible at messiah university in central pennsylvania he's published two books one titled trouble i've seen changing the way the church views racism and who will be a witness igniting activism for god's justice love and deliverance his work teaching anti-racism and solidarity with oppressed people through a christ-centered theological lens takes him all over the world Welcome to the podcast, Drew. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Rodney. i um, been looking forward to our conversation together.
0: Thanks so much. I, um, I've i been excited to invite you to this, um, particularly because it's been fun to kind of listen in on all of your work and over the years. And I believe the last time I actually saw you face-to-face was at a churches Together dinner back in Harrisburg. I'm thinking like it's going back a few years like 2017 or something like that so it's it's good to see you here again
1: yeah yeah it's good that we could uh, connect even from across the world
0: yeah definitely um i for those of you who don't know i'm i'm tuning in from cape town south africa where i've been living the last few years and ironically drew was in cape town a number of months ago and we were not able to connect when he was here so um but so it's fun to have this conversation now
1: yeah and you know i was actually supposed to be coming again in october but it just hasn't worked out so hopefully in the new year that i'll get to be back in the cape town area one more time yeah
0: oh that'd be great that'd be great this time i'll have to make sure i i get to see you while you're here all right so before we jump into the topic for today could you share a little bit more about yourself
1: Yeah, so um, I'm an associate professor at Maasai University. I've been teaching there. I guess I'm in my seventh year right now. I'm also a program director for a program there called Thriving Together Congregations for Racial Justice. So we're actually working with 12 congregations in our area, in our region, um, crossing some historic racial boundaries and all different denominations. um, And they're kind of committing to a two-year process of learning both you Know kind of academic ish learning, but also experiential learning about our region and how it became the way that it is. Um, the history because there's just so much forgetfulness, certainly in the United States, around um, how our uh, society has been organized by race in ways that advantage and disadvantage some. And so, um, yeah, I'm doing that. Uh, work I am, I'm married. Um, Uh, Renee and I have been married for, it'll be, we're approaching 15 years uh, next, this coming summer, summer of 2023. um, And we have three boys, Micah, Dietrich, and Vincent. Um, I am an author. I uh, wrote uh, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, um, which came out in 2016. And my newest book is Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, which is a 2020 text um, and just, uh, I guess, as a, you know, a lot of my time, um, I invest a lot of stuff working with local organizers and activists in my city. I'm just partnering and trying to see, you know, encourage, participate, collaborate in the good work that's already happening here um, and inviting other people to join in. And I love basketball, if on a more personal note, you know, um, love watching basketball, Sixers, and also playing basketball with my boys.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Drew. Um, it's great to hear, too, about all the different type of work you're involved in, both in the United States and outside of the United States as well, around yeah. these types of topics of um, oppressive legacies and uh, racism that can happen in multiple contexts around the world. And I'm particularly encouraged as well by your work in Harrisburg. Um, you know, as you know, I lived in Harrisburg for a number of years and um, also went to church in Harrisburg and I kind of feel the the types of issues you're coming up against and talking through and bringing people together um, to kind of unpack these things. And I, I find that really meaningful and needed And just encouraging to hear that you're kind of, you know, working in that space uh, in a city that's really close to me as well. So so thanks for that and for sharing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, we're in a moment right now where um, we actually, there's a, some momentum and energy that people are actually open and willing to come together a little bit more because there's just been so much blatant racism that I think so many people have been ignoring for so long. And so I think, um, at least there's a number of churches that, you know probably had good intentions before but are now willing to dive a little deeper and do the harder work and so yeah i'm grateful for the opportunity to lead um that program uh, oh and i should have mentioned earlier um a big one in terms of who i am is just on inverse podcast as well um, so i co-host inverse podcast along with jared mckenna from australia and so that's also uh something Um, really important to the work that I do right now. And it's really fun. I know there's a lot of folks in uh, South Africa and Cape town area in particular that um, are friends of the inverse podcast. I definitely want to mention that.
0: All right. Yeah, that's, that's right. And we um, you know, I've really enjoyed the inverse podcast, really been a listener uh, and appreciated all the different conversations and directions that the podcast goes um, and just found the the heart of it really helpful as well, just a real encouragement to me. So just wanted to let you know that too, and also invite other people to check it out. Um, and it is definitely a, um, a podcast that has some traction in Cape town as well, which is really, really fun to see, um, these connections, really global connections kind of, um, you know, being built around, um especially in contexts like Cape town that have some similar issues that need to be worked through as well. And I know it's a different context in, in some ways, uh, but, you know, very similar legacies of racism and colonialism and and, in really profound deep ways as well. So I I really appreciate how these messages of love and justice and deliverance are, are really cross-cultural and how they, and how they witness to Jesus, as well as promote the kind of community we, we long to see and be a part of.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: So I, I really look been looking forward to this conversation. Um, as you might know, um, the, the kind of audience of this podcast is uh, monitoring and evaluation or research professionals um, that usually work in some sort of nonprofit work that has a Christ-centered or Christian element or focus to it, um, based around the world, working in contexts around the world. Um, but, you know, we're starting to, and have been for the last couple of years, want to be more intentional about thinking through issues around colonial legacies and how even with good intentions, monitoring, and evaluation, and research can sort of be part of the problem sometimes. Um, not always, but sometimes, yes, uh, yeah. even in organizations like ours, and um, where you know, if our if we're not careful, we might be living out legacies that we don't intend to. Um, whether that's ideologies of white supremacy of of colonialism or neo-colonialism, um, and just, you know, doing more harm than good. And that's what we as Christ followers want to be cognizant of that and aware that if, if we are participating in that kind of, um, destructive and dehumanizing legacy and to be able to move away from that and walk more in the ways of Jesus, who lived in solidarity with, with those who are oppressed. And so we really wanted to invite you to, to share with us, um, you know, many of us, you know, coming from multiple backgrounds around the world, but are sort of a part of the system that, you know, we're still trying to understand and, and, and operate in a way closer to what Jesus looks like. So really wanted to invite you in to share what you might have to say to us and what advice and, and encouragement or challenge you might have for us. So yeah, we'd just like to set that up and you know and invite whatever you have on your heart to to share with us.
1: Yeah. So and I want to preface everything that I say uh, first with I don't have close proximity to that particular aspect of work, though I have certainly a pretty extensive experience with a whole variety of organizations, institutions, nonprofits, um, that I think, um, have share similar DNA and goals and missions. And so hopefully, um, some of my thoughts would be helpful, but, um, I also rely on you in some ways, you know, to make, I'll try to reach in a couple areas and see if we're touching something. And then you can affirm whether, um, um, that maybe fits in well with um, the realities on the ground. Uh, maybe I'll start off reflecting. I'm not even going to read it, but I'm just kind of thinking a little bit um, with 1 Corinthians 1. That's a passage that just kind of sticks with me all the time. Um, so I think it's starting around like verse 18 through maybe like 31 or so. Um, you have this passage where Paul is... <coughs> Paul is thinking or writing about how he preaches the message of Christ crucified. And in preaching the message of Christ crucified, um, that is like, for him, that is everything. Everything begins and ends with that thinking, right? The significance of this executed messiah right that's really what he wants to say a lot of people hear christ crucified and and because of the history of how atonement theology developed people hear you know christ died for you or this or that but he's not actually talking about atonement theology at this point he's literally just reflecting on the fact that jesus christ went and underwent a state-sanctioned execution, right? And what is the significance about what God is doing in the world? And it's interesting that in that text then, he, he, he makes the claim that somehow in this crucified Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God are being unveiled in, in Christ's, you know, literally brokenness and, and execution and humiliation. Um, his, the power of God and the wisdom of God are being revealed. And so for me, it begins to force me to think about how I think about wisdom and how I think about power. Right. Um, and my, I won't lie, like growing up and listening to other people talk about God, like usually like when people think about who God is and how to describe who God is and what God is doing in the world, oftentimes there's a temptation to think about God as kind of like a supersized version of, if not ourselves, of the most powerful person we can think of, right? Um, Whether it be um, presidents or kings or maybe even tyrants, right? Whatever. like It was like a supersized version of that, of human power, what we would do the kind of way that we would exercise um, and probably dominate others, right? But it's just like you multiply that. It's exponential. And that's kind of what we project onto God in terms of how we understand God's power and what God is up to in the world. And what is challenging about Paul's reflection on this executed Messiah is the way in which he's forcing us to grapple with the fact that God is not, God's power is not being expressed in the way that we might expect in our actual world. And because of that, uh, we've kind of got to look in a different direction, right? Um, That because God's power is being uh, expressed most clearly in the crucifixion of of Christ, um, that all of a sudden we have to look at, I often call it the you know, the axis of vulnerability, right? <laughs> Upon which uh, uh, God's actual activity in the world, something like God is not just a doctrine, but but to to believe that God is alive and active and at work right now in our presence, right? Um, but not necessarily in the way that we might assume. And so it certainly challenges uh, our, our um, most mainstream wisdom and mainstream assumptions about where to look for God and where God is at work. Um, And then just so that we don't miss the point, right? Paul's like, all right, let me make it plain for you. God has chosen the weak to shame the strong, right? God has chosen the things that are considered nothing to shame those things that are considered something, right? And he's like, let me make it plain for you. Look to those that are the least last lost and little ones. So right? I look to the edges, margins, and cracks of society. Look to those who had their backs against the wall. Um, and so it's a complete reframing of how God is at work in our world. Where to find God, literally in this case, um, that God is the very foundation Um of the lived experience of those that are on the edges and margins of society, right? Um, So I just want to start there maybe as a backdrop to thinking through um, what this might mean. Um, Second, I'll tell a story, then I'll begin to maybe ask a question or to think through. But I will share a story that I share very often. um, And this is a Harrisburg story. So you may have even heard me tell this one or be familiar with this story. But um, I often tell a story about um, in Harrisburg, When I first, so I'm living in Harrisburg for the second time. And the first time I was living here, I was a youth pastor and working for an after school program for like middle school boys, predominantly young black and brown kids in the neighborhood. And one particular day, I was driving through like Allison Hill, which, you know, is a actually at one time was a majority white place and then white flight took place. And so now it's one of the poorest neighborhoods um, in our area. And 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 I was driving through Market around like 16th, 15th, 14th, around there. Um, and this is an area where you don't really find a lot of white people. Right. There's just not a lot of white people around, you know, you might a couple here and there who are like serving and stuff like that. But for the most part, most white people got out um, and anybody that's any white people still around, most of them are like the white people who got like left behind, right? Who, who economically could not um, escape with everyone else during white flight moments. Um, so I'm driving and this one particular day, I see this big like group of white people. Right. There's just a lot of white people out on the street. Uh, and, and they're wearing like these really bright yellow t-shirts and I could like, you know, like you can't miss them. They wanted to be seen and like everybody was seeing them cause they're almost like glowing as a group together, you know? Um, and so I'm driving and I'm thinking like, what in the world is going on? And I'm imagining like, I don't know, a church youth group or some nonprofit at work or whatever. I'm thinking like, oh, silly church people, right? That's my first assumption, right? Silly church people, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, well, we could do better because they're like handing out like grocery bags to people as they're walking down the street. They have a flatbed truck kind of pulled up on the sidewalk and they're just like handing them out to everybody. It didn't seem like there was any method to the madness. If I wasn't running late, I probably could have got out and got a bag. Cause it was like Oprah, you know, like you get a bag, you get a bag, everybody gets a bag, you know, it was that kind of moment. And so, so I'm trying to, you know, just like whatever, who cares, not really important. And I kind of laugh it off, but as I drive a little bit closer and I see what's on the, on their shirt and it said, um, Harrisburg invasion, Harrisburg invasion. And all of a sudden I didn't find any of this funny anymore. Right. Um, so here's this group that clearly does not live in this neighborhood, not from this neighborhood. And they've got the logo or the slogan or whatever, the name of the events, Harrisburg invasion on their bright yellow t-shirts. Um, and of course, you know. I'm very aware of such a thing as a white savior complex. I know that that exists, but usually it's not like the name of the, the motto of the event is not usually, you know, white savior complex. So, so it's a little striking and I'm joking now, but I was so furious when it, when I saw it, I was so angry. um, When I actually saw it and you know, I had to ask around about like what was going on and how long have they been doing this, and found out like it's some group from the West Shore. Which so in Harrisburg, um, on the West Shore, they call the West Shore the White Shore because there was on the White West Shore, there's just this historic. There were, for decades, historic practice of excluding Black people from living in those neighborhoods, racial restricted deeds on homes, hostility. I think even towards Carlisle, Sundown Town, and things like that. KKK activity out by Dillsburg. You know, all, there's a there's a reason why it remains a majority white neighborhood for for decades and it wasn't just who wanted to be there right it was economic it was racial practices that excluded black people um from living in those neighborhoods and so those there were churches that were actually working together collaborating to plan a 24/7 <laughs> you know like a one day 24-hour kind of drive-by ministry where they showed up they handed out their groceries and then they disappeared never to be seen again right um and of course afterwards i'm thinking like why am i so angry like what what is it that's really making me angry about what's happening here and my thinking i was like you know like thinking about U.S. history and all that we've been through and like they're not coming in here and they're not trying to enslave anybody, right? Like that's it's not 1850 and slavery's not still happening. You know, it's not 1950. It's not a Jim Crow system that they're trying to set up and impose on others. They're literally coming here and they're uh, trying to, you know, help, right? So they're trying to hand out groceries, you know? So, so if they're not trying to harm anybody, then why am I so angry? And I think for me, what it really came down to was the fact that even with these shifts where these, this particular group of people had really good intentions, right? Even with those good intentions and all their planning that went through racial hierarchy still stayed in place, right um like that never ended um at the end of the day like white people were still at the top they believed they had all the answers they kind of had a paternalistic posture upon which they were engaging with us and they um and they refused to i would say take seriously jesus's teachings where the first are last and last are first right because that actually requires an imagination that subverts everything on its head, um, where they might maybe instead of coming in and saying, you know, this is what our plans are, or these are the issues we already know, um, but instead that they're going to um, remove themselves from taking on the role of the teacher and taking on the role of the student, right? Right. As learners, as as participants, but as learners that are submitting and yielding to the work that's already happening. Because in Allison Hill, there was already lots of amazing, really good work happening um, in the community. Um, and so, you know, there were so many missed opportunities because their imagination was not oriented towards how they could actually join in, in that work. Um, and I think even in the microcosm of that little experience that I had there in Harrisburg, which we still see all over the place. In many ways, there are echoes, even if it's a little less overt, hopefully less overt on the national level with some of the nonprofits, um, the legacies of relationships in terms of hierarchy and paternalism and stuff still continue to um, be a reality. So so where I want to go then is to think about, so I don't really know that much about the kind of research and data in particular and what that looks like, but I do think that Um, it is worth wrestling with whose lived experiences are shaping the kind of work that's being done. Right. And, And in particular, like it'd be easy to think, you know, that the issue, especially when things like data, it seems like, oh, well, you know, the data says this. And so it's pretty easy. You know, it's pretty straightforward. There's no, not much questions because you just got to get the right answers, right? You, you just punch it in. It seems like a very neutral, objective kind of reality. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that we can't even just look at the answers, I think what I would imagine is maybe a even more important question when we think about, so like different lived experiences will give different answers to different realities. That's one thing. But even bigger than that is the fact that out of different lived experiences, people will ask different questions, right? People will ask very different questions. And I think that may be um, the 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 point upon which, you know, Um, the data and research kind of focus um, may lose its go off the rails, right? In terms of uh, whose questions are driving all this research to begin with. In fact, who, whose questions and for whom, right? (laughs) Is it being done for? Um, And if it's not the lived experience of those again Who who have their backs against the wall, um, who Jesus embodied as having solidarity with, then I think that maybe that's actually the place upon which um, there needs to be a really serious decolonizing in practice and and work is whose lived experiences are being centered and taken seriously and allowing the different questions to emerge, upon which then we will get a whole new set of answers, right? Um, And so there's a whole different few layers. Anyway, I feel so removed from the particularities, but I'm really curious, like if that seems to, um, you know, touch ground in terms of some of the challenges that's actually happening within um, your organization and maybe others like it.
0: Thanks, Drew. Yeah, that it's a powerful kind of opening statement for us to really wrestle with, and a powerful story to go with it as well. I think one one way I could respond is to kind of paint a similar story but within sort of the data setting if you will. Yeah. yeah. So like your group of of white people who are walking around with t-shirts in sort of a, you know, a, a particular way they're trying to help. Like if I could put it in a data setting, it could very much be you know you have some you know people asking particular questions and those people may be coming from a western or northern or sort of white or settler colonial background and they're not necessarily themselves going into communities and asking questions or or collecting data there's an a, obviously a mechanism in place in which you employ people to do that who speak the language and who understand the context and and the culture and and things like that um but what tends to happen and this is this was really quite powerful in your story is that the data gets collected it gets extracted and then those people never see it ever again you know that's been a, a pretty common experience that is being challenged now and we're we're challenging it but it's very, it's in, in this way, it's almost a very similar story, but just wrapped in a little bit of a different package Is that you have people from outside who are coming in, getting something from the experience and not necessarily, um, you know, offering anything that is of any real value Mm. Um, in it's, And it's sort of a way like when I think about data, um, it's it's personal and it's powerful and it's precious. It's like this is someone's perspective. It's someone's lived experience. And they're giving it to a data collector with consent as well. So like that's all there. You know, the ethics are there. But if they don't ever find any value from that experience, if that data doesn't come back to them, in a way that's actually helpful for them in their own community um, to make decisions, to wrestle through issues, to understand their own community better. Um, if it's not happening in a way that's mutually beneficial, then, then it's not too different from the story you shared. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's been convicting to, to M&E or monitoring and evaluation or research professionals. And for those of us who are who are trying to, you know, at least be aware of that and maybe make some steps to changing that practice, the decolonizing framework is, is very helpful because it, it actually uses a very similar language that you, that you shared, which is, you know, move like the actual, this is from an article that I read recently called um, Decolonizing Methodologies in Qualitative Research. it's by Vivananta Tambinathan and and Elizabeth Kinsella. Mm -hmm. Just recently published as well. And they talk about moving from researchers, moving from being discoverers to learners. Kind of similar to how you framed it, which is like from the teacher, from the person who's giving the person who is in power, who has the answers to moving into a different posture as a learner, as a student, where it is the people with that lived experience that you just described, people who've been enduring um, oppression and oppressive practices, potentially for generations, that they are, in a sense, having more to share than they've been given given opportunity to. And the language in this article said... um, moving from discoverers to learners where oppressed communities are the experts and knowledge holders over what they experience, over what their ideas are of, you know, moving towards flourishing. Um, and I, I find that really, really challenging, really helpful. Um, and kind of goes along with, with the kinds of things you're sharing. Um, yeah, so that's kind of maybe a response to, yeah it kind of it's not too different from what you're describing. it's very very connected,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's good, that's good, yeah, I mean, it makes me think about like you know so if it if the data is not coming back, then um who is it, what role is the data playing, and who is it for, right? Um, clearly then um, it's it's not an act of solidarity and mutuality here, right? Um, and I mean, I can make my assumptions, right, around um, like, why is this data being collected? Um, and it seems like if it's not going back to the people, then it's, there's got to be some kind of self-serving kind of motivation for why this data is happening to begin with, right? Um, and so we can think about those questions, but then you know, thinking about it from a decolonizing standpoint also is, um, you know, like data is one thing. Um, I I'm, I'm influenced by Cohn who, who believes like, you know, now he push he presses like Western theologians who want to think abstractly about God and systematize and all this stuff. Um, but, but in some ways, like, it doesn't touch the ground. And in some ways for him, like truthfulness is found through story. Right. Um, so I wonder like in what ways this data needs to touch the ground and also be tied, be enfolded into the stories of the people, right. In, in ways that, that actually for themselves, and I'm not saying it as in someone else enfolding, but But allow them to make sense in in light of their own stories, right? Um, To also work and think through the meaning and significance of this data as well. But again, it's got to be data that's not just self-serving for the institution, but also that is originating out of their own yearnings and questions and desires and in collaboration together in such ways that it's actually a partnership, right? Um, And mutuality being um, birthed out of that. And so I do think, you know, a sense of calling in terms of like why we work with this data to begin with and why do this research um, is really important one that, um, again, yields to those that are actually on the ground. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate just this way of describing it as yielding to, to those in the ground, those who are living um, living in this context, living with whatever it is. Um, I I've heard it. I've heard it said recently, and I, I appreciated this as well, that, and when it comes to data, it's, it, it's really about capturing people's voices. Right. And, and I, I know there's this kind of very common Christian phrase about, you know, giving voice to the voiceless. You know, that's kind of a common mm-hmm. phrase that people say. But right. I, I've appreciated others reframing that to being that, no, everyone has a voice. Right. It's just either they've been purposefully ignored or purposefully silenced. Right. Um, and so... I think one of the things kind of what I'm taking or what I'm um, sort of wrestling with, with what you're sharing is that um, data needs to have, it needs to sort of somehow allow people to express their voice, allow people to tell their stories and then even to wrestle with it in different ways as it kind of comes back. Cause it's, I think the other thing about kind of research that can come out is that it's it's all it's linear. It's like you do this and then it's done and then you have the report and it's over, you know, and it's like recognizing that none of this is linear, you know, in real life, like in, you know, just even thinking personally, like how many times am I learning the same lessons over and over? in potentially new ways, or, you know, maybe a little bit of a layer deeper or something, but Mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, we have to come back to things again and again. And so if someone's able to share their data through whatever means, maybe it's a quantitative survey, but then they're able to look at that in light of their own story, like you shared, And then come back to it again and and disagree with it and say, that's not, that's not my experience. And then hear what others have to say and then come back to it again and make sense of it. Like it does for me feel closer at least to what the purpose should be of, of any data collection that it's, it's allowing people to, to go on this search for truth um, in ways that are meaningful for them. And not ways that are imposed by by outside contexts that that don't don't make sense or don't aren't relevant for for what people are actually going through.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, I think that's good. And uh, yeah, and I think even that last point that you made, just the um, like, what does it mean to impose? I mean, and I guess I was getting at that in a different way, but like, it's so easy to impose our way of seeing things, our questions, our, our, we'll call them research questions, right? Things that we want to figure out onto the lives of others in their lived experience, which is sometimes both messier than what our data is even capable of grabbing. And certainly, um, yeah, I, yeah, I guess that it, I just think that there's a danger in imposing. And so as much as it can come the other direction, right? So everything moving in the other direction, I think is really important. Um, but I do think, yeah, the processes of data collection that are more humanizing are really important. Um, that actually, you know, respects the, I mean us human beings, we're, we're complex, right? And, and, and usually are just never as clean as whatever we can get down on paper. And so um, to cycle back again, and again, and again, um, seems to be um, a more honest uh, grappling with the, the human predicaments and all its complexity. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. I and I have a a story on this as, as well, that was really um, from one of my colleagues, shout out to Eliana, if she's listening. Um, we, we in in our space, there's a tension sometimes, like the article I just kind of quoted from you is from a qualitative uh, perspective. Yeah. So, you know, you're right. talking about words as data, people's stories as data. Right. And, and sometimes that's a little bit easier to work with in some ways when, when we come to these types of concepts. With quantitative data you know it can have that at least that um connotation of being very black and white and very clear or objective when it obviously is not always and can be part of an oppressive legacy very easily um but like there's also a temptation as well if it's not handled well if it's not if you don't work through it with people it can be seen as a very external thing, a thing that's not really connected to life. And one, like one of my colleagues really broke this down in a helpful way with a church community recently. And um, there's a, we've kind of noticed that with this kind of quantitative approach that we're taking, people can, and they're, and they're collecting their own data in their own communities. Right. So, they're learning things maybe for the first time about their community, and they're really holding this data with a lot of value because they collected it because they, because they asked the questions. And so, and then there's this other instrument, this other process that we're helping to bring in using measures and, you know, validated constructs from multiple contexts around the world, et cetera. And people can see it as very separate and, um, it's like, oh, we'll use that even though it's not ours, but we'll, we'll really value our own data more. And I get that, you know, I I I understand that. And one of and it really didn't take a long time, but my colleague, you know, she just kind of talked with one of the the communities and she said, you know, do you like, do you think it's important that children brush their teeth or clean their teeth? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we think that's important. And, you know, they kind of talked around that for a while. And they were, and then she was like, well, that's one of the questions in this survey. Um, and it, because, because she asked them, like, do you know how, like, do you know how often or like how regularly kids brush their teeth? And they were like, no, we don't know that, you know, and they were probably already thinking about like, should we be asking that question or how would, how would we do that? Um because it's sort of remind, you know, it's a reminder that, yeah, this is important. And if kids aren't, aren't being taught how to do this, it could lead to other types of disease or whatever. Um, and so she's saying, well, this instrument that we're, what we're going to be working with you on, it's just one of the questions and it has to do with this, um, outcome around being, and, and just this kind of very informal, in very like respectful and honoring conversation around what, what we're doing together and how this can be of value. Um, Either the questions that they have, or maybe that they are reminded that they have um, was, was really helpful. And it, and what, what ended up happening from that conversation was, a real hunger and an interest to continue to partner and to go deeper in this partnership of what data gets brought into this conversation and how this data would be collected in a way that um, that's respectful to kids and participants of the program. And so it's, it's sort of like this interesting marrying of like what you would call like scientific rigor, but with also a real honoring and careful walking with communities, listening to them and taking on feedback and continuing to grow and how this partnership is done in a way that leads to the kind of flourishing that we all hope can be possible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that, that, that kind of connects a little bit, but uh, I, I kind of think about these like really detailed elements of kind of the sorts of things that we're doing and, and the kind
1: of data we're, we're involved in collecting. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely connect because I think that's, that's the humanizing aspect, right? That's the, um, actually having conversations, um, about what is actually happening here. Why, what are their hopes and desires? What were our goals? And it is, it, it is unfolding it into like, like, is this, a part of the story that you want to know, right? Is this something that you want to lean into? And so so that there can actually maybe be some potential synergy in terms of why we would actually collect this rather than just you collect data on how often someone's brushing their teeth and they've never asked it and they don't care. Well, then it's just information, right? And it's just, um, uh, yeah. So I do think um, honoring people in such ways that we actually... Um, Respect their agency and their lived experiences and the ways that they, um, what their hopes and desires are for their community are really important. Um, And to not just impose our desires onto others, right? Or to assume that our data points are the only ones that matter, right? Um, When there's maybe a whole nother range of things that, you know, those who are collecting data might not even imagine or think of right? As, as worthy of, of collecting, but you mentioned, you know, this community was excited about their own data collection, right? Well, there's certain things it, and, and I think all of the data collection in some way, at some point you want that kind of response and it should have been such collaboration and conversation throughout uh, on a level playing field, right? Without power dynamics of imposing on others um, so that that's the response for all the data that's being collected. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, this um this article I referenced earlier puts it this way. Um the it's a principle of reciprocity and respect for self-determination. Yeah. Collaboration on any study from conception to the end, collective ownership to the whole process, analysis and dissemination. I mean, that's I mean, that's an area we have to grow. I would say, I would I would say to to at least some degree, all of us in this space and all the organizations we represent need to grow in this. Um, we need to take a hard look at this principle and see like, okay, where are we doing this well and where are we really not? And to, you know, and to work with the communities we work with and, you know, get get advice from them, like, how can we do this better? How How is this, how can we move forward in a way that actually does that, actually shows reciprocity and respect um in a way that maybe hasn't been as strong as it could be um in the past that's good um i know we're getting close to you know the end of our time but i i had another um just quote from this article that um i thought was really powerful maybe could help help us wrap up um and that was um this quote of like if research or maybe M E or a mindset evaluation hasn't changed you as a person then you haven't done it right that's the mm. one, one of the one of the quotes from this and um and i've seen a lot of like when it comes to the word decolonizing or decolonization you know as with these types of words which you know are developed with a a liberation Kind of heart behind them, you know. You you see backlash, you know, um, that comes out, you know, in different spaces. That that kind of misconstrue. I think what what words like that really are meant to try and help us do. Um, but I really feel like this quote sort of captures a lot, which is that, you know, when it comes to collecting data or using data, um, especially with communities that are marginalized um or oppressed that this is a mutually transformative process and if it's not then there's some level of extraction there's some level of using um and we gotta we gotta move away from that as best we can and um you know by god's grace (laughs) um so yeah we'd love for you to to share anything else you have
1: yeah, yeah, no, I, I I think that quote is great um, because you know I always tell my students um, like to think about even like you know say you know the prototype of colonial like the the uh, sometimes like i call them the mascot for colonial conquest is Columbus right like and to think like what does it mean to come to another people's land to encounter other people's ways of being and living and you like read some of his like journal, like his initial thoughts are like we could come back here and like enslave everybody and plunder them, right? Like that was literally what he's writing in his journal as he's encountering that. Um, and something, so I'll use, uh, Willie Jennings language, so diseased of a social imagination, right. To get to that point, um, where that is the imagination of the kind of encounters that he would have with others as he's encountering it. And so the opposite of that is this kind of, you know, giving, receiving and sharing, right. With others in, in, in a relational way. And if it's truly in a relational way, um, then everyone leaves unchained. Like the the colonizer, right? The colonial paradigm is: I show up to somebody else's place, and everyone else changes, but me, right? Because <laughs> I'm going to, they're going to reorganize their lives around my pattern. I become the pattern upon which other people are going to live their lives by. Um, but, but. The idea of following the way of Christ is literally entering into the actual lived experiences of others and being transformed by others, right? It's the exact opposite direction. Um, And so, um, but that requires a certain, it's not just that it's relational, but a certain kind of relationship that does yield to others and is willing is vulnerable enough to be changed by others and transformed radically, sometimes beyond what we can even imagine, but we're, we're, op- we come in open enough that it can change us in ways that we haven't, haven't fathomed from the very beginning was even possible. Right. Um, and so, yeah, instead of columbusing, I think there is another way that, that even data collection and data work can be done. Um, but it's if we're willing to take that—I'll call it a dangerous road, right? Of of potentially being uh, disentangled and unraveled, but in a good way, toward, towards a more humanizing way of living and relating and seeing others, right? Um, and being seen as well. And so I think um, to to live into that, and I think I. It's hard for me to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not see that as part of the invitation, right? Um, And so I think that uh, we've got to take that seriously um, as a part of the ethos and character of our institutions as well, that that's the end goal for the, um, not just the kind of robotic work that's happening because that's so easy, right? With data research to, to kind of get into that kind of objective kind of posture, but that relational decolonizing work that again is really committed to giving, receiving, sharing, and ultimately being transformed by others.
0: Thanks, Drew. That's that's beautiful. And I, I really hope that we can be formed in that kind of imagination and and take steps uh in that direction with humility, um, with with posture of listening and and going on that transformation journey with others. Um yeah, that's the hope. And so I, I found this a really helpful conversation. Thanks for your time. Uh, wondering if people you know, are hearing you for the first time and are interested in learning more, um, where would you point them to to get to know you, to get to know your work a little bit more? Um, well, where would you have them go?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, first thing i would just say is check out inverse podcasts um there's multiple seasons i jump in i think season three is when you'll uh hear me uh, joining the um, charity conversations and we just interview a whole range of really interesting guests from all around the world um and then secondly is through my books you can catch me you know trouble i've seen or who will be a witness are great ways to also get introduced to some of my work
0: Thanks. We'll put links to those books and Inverse Podcasts in the show notes as well. Um, Drew, thanks so much for coming on and sharing, you know, your story and your work with us and your perspective. It's, I hope, going to touch a lot of people around the world from from multiple contexts, whether people who kind of come from, you know, the sort of colonizing side of things or those who have are still dealing with in their countries a uh, colonial legacy that they're they're seeking to to face and undo i hope this can give hope and um you know help people go on the journey so thanks again and thanks to everyone who's been listening God bless. thanks for having me grace and peace